Hi, hello, bonjour, ni hao. <laughs> Did I say that right? This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Mulitaler. Today, I am delighted to be joined by my friend Lama Hurani. Lama and I met in Paris a few years ago after an introduction from a friend. Lama is both a talented jewelry designer with what I could describe as a deep spiritual connection to people and the world around us, and also a cultural entrepreneur, which we get into during this interview. Lama has lived and traveled to many places, which are, of course, sources of inspiration in her collections, and is currently sharing her time with her family between Shanghai, Amman, and Barcelona. I'm really happy to be bringing you this beautiful conversation with a woman who I think is a great example about what it means to be an entrepreneur, how to have a positive impact on our communities. And so, without further ado, I am very happy to bring you this wide-ranging interview with Lama Hurani. Enjoy. So, hi Lama, it's so nice to hear your voice. How are you today? I'm great. How are things in Shanghai? Things are great. This is like the last week or two of nice weather before it winter hits and it's really nice. It's a sweet, romantic time of the year. So you grew up in Jordan in Amman. I remember you telling me that your parents opened the first private art gallery in the capital. And I wanted to see if you wouldn't mind starting with telling me a little bit about what it was like growing up, about your upbringing and your journey around creativity. My father was a political activist demanding human rights, democracy, women's rights, etc. In the Middle East, Jordan it was at the time has announced democracy as a political direction for the country. So he was kind of out of the country. So I was born in Syria. And then once they declared democracy, we moved back to Amman, Jordan, and my dad opened his think tank. My mom opened an art gallery. Her art gallery actually was the first private art gallery that was run entirely by an individual versus backed up by government or a bank or a private sector. Basically, they started the business out of nothing. They had no backing in the sense of, you know, they, they literally were entrepreneurs starting up a business. And it was really exciting as a family to go throughout that journey because as a child, you're seeing your parents really work hard and excel in something from zero. And then we grew up having the art gallery that gave us access to a lot of creativity, freedom, an unusual or uncommon way of thinking at a time. Amazing intellectual conversations gave it a lot of cultural depth and even political, like on many levels, it fed us as a family. Also growing up, I didn't understand why we had so many paintings on the walls. I think my parents literally used the house as a storage or a warehouse. <laughs> they had all the extra artworks hanging. Then I'd go to other people's homes and there's none, like literally no art. It was weird. I thought I didn't like that and I don't want to be like that when I grew up. 
but I turned out to be exactly the same as my parents where we have our almost ceiling to floor in the house. Other than that, we grew up in an environment where we were drawing all the time, expressing freely, literally playing in the street all the time. Like we had no limitations and barriers and My mom did her second degree. She did interior architecture while I was, I think, I would say I was like six. My sister was two. So we also had so many of her first students, her classmates hanging out at home. One of them was actually playing the guitar and singing to us to sleep. It was incredible. I mean, I have so many beautiful memories. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy growing up. We didn't have so much luxury in our life, but we had so much love and that was incredible. And I can see how important that is when I think about what I want to give to my children and the most important things when you raise a child. We have a lot of creativity and creative freedom to express ourselves. And I think that also was one of the key elements in who I am today. I would love to see images of of the walls of your home when you were growing up. You do have a stunning art collection that I remember seeing it in in Paris. Do you feel that you've found a space for everything where you are now in Shanghai? Is everything at home now again? You know, it's nice to see we've had the same stuff for the past eight years since we got married. So we've added a few things here and there, but our home jumps from one place to the other. And we're not the type that we keep anything behind. Our stuff live with us and grow with our family as it grows and expands. And it's really fun to see the house change and take a new identity with every new place we're in. For us, I think our most important element when we move to a new place is having our creative nest with our things that stimulate us and give us that home feeling. So the art, our objects that we've bought over trips and every item in our home has a story, has a memory, has a place, even smell sometimes. Like it's incredible, you know, what an object or an artwork make you feel and especially when you start remembering the process of acquiring that piece and the memory and what you felt and where you were and all of that and what moment in your life because you know where our lives are changing so much every day with the kids you know we've really transformed from a two people freely experiencing and exploring the world to four overnight and that that really changed our perspective to a lot of things it's nice that we had all these things to remind us of who we were before and who we will be in the future. Other than that, I did something that not a lot of parents do. I had the courage to not baby proof. So I wanted my kids to grow around art and learn to take care of things without fear. I kind of made them understand that you have to be careful and we love art. We take care of our art. And the same with the plants. It started as an experiment. The only thing I baby proofed is like some of the cabinets that had little things inside or things that they could swallow. I just closed these cabinets and I put on one corner a spongy thing for kids. And that's it. The rest, I never moved a vase or an artwork. It was incredible. And my kids are super, super aware of everything in the house. That's really interesting. I'm so happy to see how mindful your kids are and how well they understand their environment, I guess. Well, I mean, it's attitude. You reflect what you want them to learn, right? 
as long as you're coherent with what you tell them to do, I think they just adopt the attitude and way of thinking automatically. So the other day over text message, we realized that we had a friend in common. So this other friend we have in common is my previous guest on the show, Paolo Ferrarini, who was your teacher at the Marangoni Institute in Milan. And do you know what? As I was editing the podcast, I kept on thinking, maybe Lama knows him. <laughs> And I didn't have a chance to text you to double check. So I'd love to hear about how you ended up in Milan and how did you pick this school? And if you want to tell us, what was Paolo's class like? So before I met my husband and Spain became a compass or a center point in our life, Italy was my Mecca, actually. So I would go there every few months to fuel up. So I used to travel there a lot and I used to seek inspiration whenever I was working on a collection and I used to go to jewelry fairs. So I was really connected to Italy and I did my gemology degree before I did my master's degree there. It's always been a place I was passionate about. So Milano made a lot of sense. I was in a creative point where I felt I really needed like reinventing myself. I felt like a bit of a creative block. So I'm like, I really need to get out of my comfort zone. So I did my master's, wanted to do Milano. Marangoni made a lot of sense. They had just opened a product design class, which was what I wanted. And I joined, it was literally like a private master's class because we were three or four people max. It was incredible. So our professors became our friends. We're all professionals that are doing a master's degree. So it wasn't like, student-professor relationship. It was really fun. It was really an incredible experience. There were amazing teachers. And Paolo's class struck me a lot because I'm the type, I, I can't remember the name of the course, but until today I practice and I play all the time. It's something called emotional geography. So we connected. That point of the course was like really important to me because that's what I do when I design. It's part of my inspiration process. It's part of my creative process. The whole emotional geography connecting the world through sense, experiences, emotions, visuals. I really loved that aspect and I was doing it all the time. It's basically when you're in a market and you smell a smell or you remember, I don't know, a meal at home or a meal you had at someone's home that you love. Or you see a painting, but it reminds you of someone else's living room or a view from a window. So it's like connecting the senses with the geography and how it triggers emotions. And I love that really. Actually, the other day I lived it. we were at a place called Columbus Circle here in Shanghai. It's an old colonial architectural plaza that has beautiful architecture. And it reminded me, there's this giant pool in the middle. There's literally a courtyard that instead of a courtyard, there's a pool in it, you know? So it just reminded me of the Molitor You know that hotel? Oh, in yes, Paris? that hotel in Paris. Absolutely. Yeah, it's beautiful. I remember, I mean, actually, I went there when I was gigantic a few weeks before delivering. And I remember everyone's jaws dropping <laughs> when they saw my belly. But it was incredible how I literally lived the Molitor moment and remembered how I felt in my body, in my everything under the sun there while I was at night in Columbus Circle in front of that pool. It was really nice. That's why I remember Paolo a lot. And a few years later, he interviewed me for The Cool Hunter and he wrote about my jewelry, which was really sweet as well. So 
he's become a friend. I saw him in Shanghai as well a few years ago. I think that's the beauty of connecting with people through common interests. Now, I could have started with that, but I wanted to know, mm. I only have a hint of the answers. I was wondering if you could tell us the story of what compelled you to get started in making jewelry. It's a funny story. So I was interning at my mom's art gallery in the last year of my university years. I've studied art in Jordan. I studied fine arts. And then I did my diploma in jewelry design and my master's in product design. So basically, I was sitting there. I've always, throughout my life, since I was a child, I had this thing for jewelry. Actually, my mom keeps on telling me how, as a, a child, I used to stop her in front of facades of jewelry stores. And I remember the facades were like stacked with gold, 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 gold. It was incredible. Like this whole facade. It's not like the chic, <laughs> composed, <laughs> elegant little facades that have, you know, a torso with a statement necklace on it or a few rings. No, it was literally from top of the window to the bottom stacked with gold. I used to stop her and not allow her to move for a good 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just looking at everything. And then as I grew, I started making my own things like I remember making a necklace with a sea star I had bought in a tiny shop as a child and having some beads and stuff. And mom used to collect Bedouin jewelry and ancient like vintage jewelry. So I've had that in my life growing up. And then while we were at the gallery, it was the Iraq war time. So there was a jeweler looking for a job that came to the gallery and he actually said that I'm a jeweler, I'm looking for a job. And mom and I literally looked at each other. I'm like, ah, why don't we explore that? I mean, yeah, it sounds exciting. So we started a workshop in my mom's tiny kitchen in the gallery. And we had such basic materials and instruments. And it was so funny. And I made my first jewelry collection. And then a few months later, six months later, I made my first exhibition in a foundation in Jordan. And Her Majesty Queen Rania, actually, she had just become queen. She was supposed to open it, but I think she gave birth or I don't know what happened. But then it was like kind of a timeline where she just became queen and a new era in Jordan was happening. I had a beautiful exhibition there, a lot of feedback, a lot of positive reactions. And I tackled it as art. So it wasn't really as wearable, I would say, my work is now. It was more on the artsy, funky side. And then I did another exhibition, which was really much more mature, more solid and more connected as a concept. I thought I wanted something that makes me stand out. And also it was like at a time where a lot of stereotypes about the Arab world and women and religion and identity and a lot of stereotypes. So I wanted to create or use my jewelry in a way that would go beyond any differences. So I went back in time and I started recreating my own prehistoric art and primitive art. So I drew my own symbols. I wanted to go and use a language that everyone identifies, that goes beyond cultural linguistic, religious barriers and unites everyone. And everyone sees it and looks familiar, but it's different. 
I created my first collection and it was a big hit. And then museums started approaching me because, you know, I had my jewelry in the American Museum of Natural History, in Ottawa, in, in Toronto. And it was incredible, actually. Cincinnati in Canada. It was amazing. So I literally started like that from my mother's art gallery's kitchen, creating, experimenting to a full-on jewelry designer, built my career from that moment. That's wonderful. I heard you actually in interviews talking a little bit more about this fascination with primitive art. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about it? And how did that come to you as something that you wanted to connect to? I think being from a part of the world that is often misunderstood and labeled and stereotyped makes a lot of the youth think, how can I connect with the world without them seeing my skin color or religion or ethnicity or physique? What was interesting about my childhood is that my parents sent me for my first trip as a child was when I was nine years old. They sent me to an art scout. And I was really young. So, but I remember it vividly and I remember the pieces we did and we did jewelry also in that arts camp. And I've always had this desire to connect with the world. I have never felt that I belonged in one place. So my work reflects that literally. And without really connecting everything, I pursued connecting and creating cultural bridges through jewelry. So I literally used it as a medium to connect with women and men all around the world, for them to appreciate my part of the world and putting the Arab world, the skills, the talents, the passion from my part of the world on the map. Now, you opened your own atelier in Jordan for your silver line. And so I just wanted to frame for our listeners that the line that you started in, what year was it that you started? 2000. So you started your silver line in 2000. And how long after did you open your own atelier to make the jewelry? From the minute I started making my jewelry, it was made in Little Atelier. And then it was in my mom's gallery kitchen. And then we moved it to an independent workshop. A few years later, we expanded into a villa, a big house that we turned into a jewelry store and an art gallery. So we've always combined the two together. And actually... Throughout my creative journey in the first, let's say, 10 years, I've done almost always associated my jewelry with a museum or art gallery. I never tried to approach commercial stores or department stores. So that was my perspective. Silver jewelry is not really easy to position in a department store. So it made more sense to be associated with art at that point before I started my fine jewelry line. It was interesting for me to look up articles that have been written around the silver line and to discover it through the eyes of these other journalists dating back a decade or so. Some gorgeous stuff, by the way. (laughs) Some of them are really like statements. I kind of used it as an art, like silver is so neutral. So I've always used it as a canvas. So I've always exaggerated or pushed it a notch with those pieces. But the way of thinking of it is completely different than fine jewelry and precious metal and all of that. So it's interesting 
because I have to literally have two sins or two way of thinking when I design one for the fine jewelry and one for the silver jewelry. Would you talk to us about the difference in process? Because I'm fascinated about the inspirations that mm. you had for some of your fine jewelry collection. Put me through them. I know that every designer works incredibly differently. So would you tell us how you approach design in general? Actually, all my designs, whether fine or silver line, start with emotions. It's incredible because the more I talk about it, the more I discover the journey as well. I discover how I process things. And I think this is also one of the things that connects my clients to my jewelry and makes them come back for more throughout the years. It starts with a trip, with an experience, sometimes even a meal in a restaurant or something that you'll have seen or, or a book or a museum or, or even an architectural monument, uh, archaeology. I've made collections inspired by the Inca civilization. So I had to study the architecture, the history, the stories. And visit, I mean, I was in Peru and I made a collection about the glacier because I was super fascinated with how nature actually exists and how trees grow and ice. I mean, it's incredible that there's life. You would think there's no life much. I mean, in a frozen environment, emotions I felt in those places are the reason why I would create a collection inspired by those places. And then it leads to research and kind of studying those places and creating my own version of that and creating a story out of it that would translate into a design and a collection and a story actually to tell the client. My work has always since the beginning been based on storytelling. So now I see how important it is obviously today, but I've created my whole brand on the stories I felt and the emotions on literally the first impression, that thing I want to transcend through that jewelry piece. And I want the wearer to feel when they wear it. I can't really put it exactly in words, but I mean, obviously I document, I take pictures, I sketch a lot till I get to the designs that I'm happy with. It takes me a few months because I need to create some sort of a creative or a calculated chaos around me where there's books and there's a sketchbook that is constantly open waiting for me to sketch on it. And I doodle, 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 nothing. A lot of rubbish comes out and then slowly it turns and transforms into something that I can understand and pinpoint that this is the direction that I want to be going to. It's really never the same process because it depends on what I want to wear and where the thread starts and that's it. I really enjoy the world calculated chaos. <laughs> Thank you. This is me. <laughs> That's really inspiring. I don't think of you as someone who's chaotic. So I enjoy the, the image that you just got me. It only applies to my creative process. So, and it's, that's why I use calculated because it's never chaos. It's always my chaos that I create to facilitate a path. I know where everything is, nothing gets lost, but that chaos is important for me to jump and hop with my thoughts until I start tidying it up and creating something that I'm happy with. That's wonderful. So if you could sum it up, what does Lama Hurani Jewelry stand for? All my creative work starts with literally an emotion, a lot of passion, and a lot of happiness. So 
irrelevant on the theme or what I end up doing. The things I care about in my work, and I think people sense, first, I love what I do. So the passion is always there. The people that work my team and the people that are part of the team and that work on the pieces are happy and they're enjoying what they do. And three, my pieces attract a certain type of people. People that are as curious as I am, as cultured, they traveled the world, they're open-minded, and they can actually, to be honest, they can afford whatever they want. They would choose to be identified with creative, unique pieces versus monogrammed or something identifiable from a certain brand. The three things I would say, but in general, as a style, there's a lot of art and architecture. That's actually because of my background and my my upbringing. I think it's always present in my work. I'm always kind of aiming to create those little miniature sculptures and art objects that are wearable. So this is what I would describe my work briefly. That's wonderful. And it's nice for people who've not seen it yet. I will put all relevant links in the show notes so that people are able to access you on multiple platforms. So you are at the helm of your own brand and you've obviously done incredibly well with it. I'd love to find out from you what were the roadblocks in the way since you started or what do you feel are the obstacles now to develop as an independent brand? A few things, to be honest. First... I started as an artist. I didn't start as a commercial jewelry brand. So that was an obstacle and an opportunity at the same time. I felt also sometimes being Jordanian, no one understands Jordan. Or like, why would someone think like a Jordanian brand would be as good as an Italian or an American? You know what I mean? So that was one of the things that, you know, there were like an opportunity and a difficulty at the same time. Other than that, having a small brand and then trying to understand what do you want out of this brand? What do you want to feel like your journey has been like? Do you want to keep on chasing, making it big? Do you want to expand? But I'm always following my heart and I'm always kind of trying to select who I want to collaborate with the department stores, the people, the I mean, and the clients, somehow, whomever I end up collaborating with becomes a friend somehow. Because, you know, you, you get attracted to things that resemble you. You find something in those pieces and the jewelry and makes you feel something. And that connection is reciprocated. And it's usually building a long-term relationship with the people I've worked with. Other than that, the obstacles was changing my way of thinking from silver jewelry to fine jewelry. I moved to fine, which is actually a harder way of doing things. So usually you start really high end and you make a more accessible line or commercial line for price point for it to be more accessible and economic for the masses. But what I did is the other way around. I started with the silver line and I created my fine jewelry line because my silver line wasn't distributable because there were artworks and they were impossible to replicate. So there was no place commercially for them in stores. I created the fine jewelry to have 
a niche product that is clearly commercially understood by clients and buyers. And that was a harder road to take. It's harder to reposition your brand to a more luxury brand than create a, a more affordable line. What I would say that my biggest challenge to date, none of what I said actually were as challenging as the past four years. The minute I became a mother and having to choose my kids over my brand and having to slow down significantly because I had no brain, emotional or mental space for anything else. I was completely consumed. So I had to slow down and give priority to my kids. And that was the biggest challenge, to be honest. My team, I'm really proud of them and I love them. They've been family to me 20 years together. But I think it was impossible to be as present on both. I mean, I'm not the type that can give half myself to anything. Yeah, that was the biggest challenge, I think. Mm. I appreciate that. And there's one particular person I have in mind who's also a jeweler who would just completely understand and agree with you. The fine jewelry marked, I think, 12 years on La Mahorani jewelry. And it was a transition that was supernatural. And it's like literally the juice or the condensed part of 20 years of making jewelry. I really love it. I'm really proud of the pieces because they're super wearable. And then I found my niche. Like basically I work on very familiar elements and I just twist them and turn them into really different and unfamiliar pieces. And there's a lot of playfulness to it. I know that your favorite collections are the evolution of rock. I love it. Achida is so up my street. I mean, both of them I love. But I'm also quite partial to the Minion. They're so cute. The Minions are so much fun. The Minions just came out and about because I love pearls, but I find pearls in the market to be a bit dull. And I'm just bored of the fall pearls. It is all over the market. I wanted to have like characters that are made out of pearls and gold. So... I created those little mignon pendants that are super sweet and fun. And each person reacts to them differently. So some people see their horoscopes or their child's character or their sister, best friend. It's really fun and endearing. The other collection is Chida. Chida is one of my favorites as well. It's inspired by one of my favorite artists. He's a poet, philosopher. He passed away. He's from San Sebastian in Spain. And his way of working is very poetic, very philosophical. And I really wanted to do a jewelry collection that actually captures that. So I work a lot on the dot and the line and the relationship and the playfulness between where a line stops and where and when and how. It's very feminine, but it's also kind of masculine at the same time, even though it's almost another skin on your skin, seamlessly merged into your hand. And it's nice because you can stack them. You can wear several rings in the same hand. Yeah, a lot of people can relate to them from an aesthetical point of view. So it depends on how you perceive jewelry. And to me, jewelry is a second skin. It needs to be durable and it needs to be comfortable. But also it has to be unique. It has to reflect my way of thinking whenever anyone wears. Actually, I think to reach that point where design and wearability meet and join forces perfectly, you need experience. I mean, you need to have 
done so many pieces of jewelry to understand exactly what works. And so the evolution of rock, that's obviously a whole different story again. It's a star collection. So this collection started with my wedding ring. My husband was too scared to design something. He's like, how do you propose to a jewelry designer? So he got me literally the most timeless classical solitaire ring. And he's like, here, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) He proposed in a beautiful way. I have to say he was super romantic. But the day after I was like, so the ring. And he's like, you can recreate it as a symbol of my commitment. So I literally turned, I was like, what do I do? Like, I didn't see myself wearing a classical, traditional diamond ring. So I literally put the diamond in between my fingers and I'm like, okay, that's where I want it. So it started there. I started setting stones on the side. So they sit in between your fingers perfectly. And it went from a formal way of seeing a wedding ring or an engagement ring into a super casual. It was like the ready to wear diamond, you know? (laughs) And it's also architectural. It preserves the integrity of the stone. So however it moves, because, you know, when you have the stone on top, it's always moving and it looks awkward because it's like tilted here and there, you know? Mm. So this way, it's perfectly sitting in between your fingers. It's architecturally super interesting and however it moves it looks super designed and light goes through i wanted to reinvent what we think of a rock so i broke it i restructured it i i just worked on the structure and the facets and it became super architectural it became clean lines but then you have this beautiful stone in between your fingers and sitting comfortably and then it doesn't catch into your clothes Really, it became a solution and an aesthetic. So I love this collection because it's commercially super appealing as well because it's really different and speaks to a lot of people. Thank you so much for that. That was wonderful. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Atelier in Jordan because I know it has really very strong ethical and socioeconomic goals. Would you talk me through what you're doing and who's making your jewelry there? So my silver line is socially impactful. Since the beginning, I wanted to, other than creating cultural bridges, I wanted to have some sort of an impact. I can't say that it's the most socially impactful project in Jordan, but my point was like, I need to empower women, especially underprivileged women that have no access to skills, They have the education, but they don't have the means to create their own businesses, to empower them. The minute you empower a woman financially, there are actually studies and statistics that say women would give almost 90% of their income to their family. So to improve education, the well-being of their family. So that's one of the key things for me was building a brand. And in Jordan, there's a lot of some limitations for women sometimes. So I wanted to break those barriers by empowering them through skills and economic empowerment. What I did until a few years ago was giveaways. So we did a lot of corporate gifts that were done in collaboration with women at home that we gave the tools and be trained and the raw materials too. And those gifts were 
priced above labor. Everything was priced above what a commercial mass-produced gift would be. And those banks, uh, organizations were actually approaching us for that because they wanted to have some sort of an impact as well. So this is that part. Now, actually, people are referring to my journey or me as a cultural entrepreneur. Now that entrepreneurship is like, is the right word, but at the time I didn't know that I was doing that. But my passion is about connecting and creating those culture bridges with the Arab world and Jordan and enabling a lot of youth to also dream and see that a Jordanian brand was exhibited in museums around the world, was worn by beautiful women, incredible, inspiring, strong women around the world and the celebrities, the first ladies and all of that. And this is so important to me because every young person in the Arab world needs an example. They need to see themselves succeeding through seeing other success stories. And that's not easy seeing, you know, the status and the situation in the Middle East, but every story counts and every success story counts and every passionate journey counts at this point. I love that so much. I think it's super inspiring to hear not just your story, but the fact that you were already and always finding means to invest in education. And I'm finding myself more and more interested in, in the same subjects, actually, probably because mm -hmm. I'm reading some of the same reports as you are. So empowering young girls and women um, is, is becoming a really an interesting focus of mine as well. You've lived in many countries and we joke about your language. I think you call it Lamanese and I call it Lamanese. Yeah. When I was in Milano, This whole obsession with Milanese, Milanese, so they called it Lamanese. That my Italian friends used to call my language Lamanese. So it was an Italian thing describing my way of expressing myself. <laughs> But you've kind of only spoken English so far in this interview. So well done reigning Lamanese in for, <laughs> for this occasion. I think now I have to be more responsible with kids and I have to stick to one language. They speak five languages right now. They're working on their fifth. I think in the future, if they choose to do Lamanese, they can. But now we need to focus one language at a time. And actually, when they play, whenever they play in French, but whenever they're stuck, they start making words in English or Spanish, French sounding. So they make <laughs> them sound French, but they're not really French. So they've inherited Lamanese, actually. So it's there. That's fascinating. So Lamanese is a mix of Arabic, English, Italian. English, Italian at the time and now Spanish. And maybe a little bit of French sometimes. Oh, yeah. And French, true. I forgot. And now you're back in Shanghai. Tell me about your relationship with the city and also what you enjoy about being in Asia and that culture and how that could influence Lamanese. So coming from Paris to Shanghai was a major change because all of a sudden I come to a place where there's incredible energy. There's so much happening, so much enthusiasm, passion, and hard work. A lot of smiles. That was the key point. I arrive, people smile. They're respectful. They're kind. They're sweet. I wanted to hug every single person I met in the first week. It was so funny. I mean, I kept on being surprised when someone was nice to me. <laughs> 
And then I just love the energy here. They really want to be on the global stage in every aspect. And it was last week or the week before, it was Fashion Week here. And it was incredible to see showrooms and the brands coming from China and how modern and how relevant. It was really, really, really heartwarming. So it's just feeling you're a part of a place where there's community, there's commitment to the community, and there's hunger for self-improvement. So coming from a place where, you know, everything's about the past, every single country in Europe acts like it's the center of the world, which maybe once upon a time they had that or a moment in glory in history. But today we're in a different reality and time where we really all need to work hard to be all connected and join forces to make the world a better place. It's just seeing how chaotic everything is right now with COVID and seeing how humans are reacting so differently in so many different parts of the world to a common human drastic crisis. I mean, that we all need to unite and be empathetic and be a part of a community and think of each other when we deal with it. And it's really shocking how the world is handling it so differently in so many different parts of the world. I mean, the underdog countries are performing and doing much better than the most developed countries in the sense of community. So I don't know. It's just, I'm happy to be here and I feel really grateful for this opportunity. And I'm grateful that my kids get to learn a language that will be super important in the future. So as a family, this is where we belong right now. And I always call myself local because I am uh, globally local. So anywhere I've met someone who's exactly the same. So Ramon and I have always been you know, just throw us anywhere and we kind of immerse into this new cultural experience. But it also depends on the people. So you really need that sense of community. And in some parts of the world, that's absent right now. I was just about to ask you as well about GQ, which is not the magazine, but a term that's supposed to mean global intelligence. Because a few years ago, you were named a young global leader at the World Economic Forum. And so would you talk us through what global intelligence means and, and what you did as part of that select group of young leaders? So the World Economic Forum selects a few people around the world that have some sort of an impact on their societies by improving their society and creating a better future in their countries, enabling their societies as well. So my role was cultural, and that's why I was recognized as part of that group. It's a group of incredible people that are super inspiring. And if you would tell me who's the most inspiring person, I mean, there's two people that come to mind that really have changed my perspective to challenge and pain and loss and there's so much to learn from the community. Sometimes I look at my journey and I reflect and I would say that maybe I should have done this or that. Or, but then you're, somehow your journey, your experience makes sense when you're a part of that environment where you have something to add and you have a lot to learn. And it's really, really a beautiful process. 
May I ask who are those two people you want to name who are so inspirational for you, if that feels appropriate? So one is Mark Pollock, who was an athlete and had an accident, became blind. And then he had another accident. He fell out of a window and got paralyzed. And he's dedicated his life to empower people with physical disabilities or challenges and accidents and robotic technology and making solutions for paralysis and empowering people who are enabled of moving. Wow. And the other one is Michael. We did a Harvard course together and he was super inspiring. I met him for the first time there. And he is from Venezuela. So Mark Pollock is from Ireland and Michael Melamed is from Venezuela. He was born with, I don't know, like his body wasn't growing basically. And he was not moving properly. And and until today, he wasn't supposed to be, in theory, from a physical point of view, to walk or move the way he does now. But he had extremely loving and supporting people around him that made him believe that he can do anything and nothing is impossible. And he actually can walk and move and he ran marathons. He can't really run, but he walks fast. And he did run marathons throughout his life. And he's one of the most inspiring and most loving and generous people I've met in my life. He's incredible. That's so lovely. Thank you so much for sharing. So you and I both lived in Paris for a while and we found it a little bit difficult for various reasons. Would you talk through how does your environment impact your creativity? It's incredible. I never thought that I would be challenged anywhere in the world in the sense of capacity and belonging and merging and immersing and all of that. Paris was harsh. Very harsh. To be honest, we were in a fragile state because we just had our twins and we arrived pregnant and we had to figure out everything. And in general, everything is so hard. I mean, what's the first word you hear when you're in Paris? Uh, non. Je pas possible. Sounds about right. That was everything. Internet, basics. Je pas possible. And then, you know, everyone's grumpy all the time. Everyone's complaining all the time. Everyone's angry all the time. And you know, really, really that affected me a lot. It's a beautiful, magnificent place with incredible people. I'm sure I'm generalizing, but I've had incredible friends and I've made incredible friends there. But to be honest, these friends that I have now that are from Paris, but they've all lived somewhere else and certain points of their life. So they're completely international and they completely understand the actual frustration that I might have with a person that is stuck in a bubble. And I have that problem with anyone anywhere in the world that is stuck, that has that local mentality as big as Paris. So it's frustrating. It's a vicious circle. And then again, the the nanny comes to you and tells you, Let your kids cry an hour a day, two hours. It's good for their heart. So I'm like, no, but my kids have reflux and I know why they're crying because they're in pain and we should, on the contrary, nurture them and love them and support them. So to prove my point, I was like, please, when you go out of your house tomorrow, until you come to my house, 
tell me how many people smile to you in the streets and say bonjour. It tells me nobody. And I'm like, exactly. Most of these people are self-soothed and they were left to cry for two hours every day. That's how I convinced her not to let my kids cry. So mentally, you have to really work hard around things to comprehend the harshness of life there, even though we were super blessed and I feel super privileged to have experienced. My kids were born there. I will always love the city and cherish the memories I have there. But I have to be honest, it was hard. It was the hardest place I've experienced. Yeah, I see that. So can I ask you, you know that the podcast, like me, is at the crossroads between business and and mindfulness. And I was wondering, what do you do to keep yourself grounded or centered in your life in general, whether it's something that's an older practice or how do you find yourself, what works for you today as a mother or as a wife or as a creative, as a busy person in a bustling city like Shanghai? Well, it's not hard. I mean, I'm from the Middle East. So since my childhood, I'm aware of tragedy. I'm aware of injustice. I'm aware of how lucky and privileged I am. So to be honest, it's pretty frustrating because I think I am very sensitive to the welfare and the human state of the world, actually. And it affects me a lot. And I always try to have a little impact or connect with people in other parts of the world or maybe help an artist or, you know, what I generally do and we do as a family is we hear of a person that needs a scholarship or is excelling at school and we would help cover some school fees or I would help a designer or an artist, you know, get more exposure. I would help promote people from the Middle East and my dream actually. And the reason why I want my business to go to a scale that is way bigger, just for me to be able to empower and hire and create this creative hub in the Middle East and you know, nurture talents and skills. This is like one of my dreams. Other than that, you just need to turn on the TV or Facebook to know what's going on because my algorithms just attract all the terrible humanitarian crises around the world. So it's like, if I want to disconnect, I definitely disconnect from social media. But my way of breathing or meditating is I listen to classical music. I've done it since I started my pregnancy, since I got pregnant until today. My refuge is classical music. That's when I disconnect and I breathe and I meditate. I do yoga and I do now boxing and I've always loved it. And now I'm doing it more regularly and it really is an outlet. It's amazing. I never thought I would enjoy punching something and it's really (laughs) enjoyable other than that really I mean learning every day I wake up just focused on how grateful and how blessed and how privileged I feel and I always talk to my kids about how important it is to appreciate things and I hope they are as empathetic and aware 
they haven't had the same upbringing and circumstances I had. So we've always wondered how we can connect our kids with the world on the sense of empathy. So I think that will come with time. Environmentally speaking, we're always talking about it. I don't want them to be anxious. So there's a new form of anxiety that's forming in children nowadays because of the environment. And they're really scared of how much pollution, how much the environment is changing and how little time we have. And the more they know about it, the more anxious they are. So we need to also be careful how we can make it a lifestyle versus an anxiety. So we're learning. We're eating less meat. We're using less water. We are buying more cautiously and sustainably. We're trying very hard to be as connected and as aware And that is part of our life. It's not something we're enforcing or trying or changing. That's uh, embedded. Mm, That's beautiful. Now, can I switch and just ask you a couple of closing questions, if that's okay? Sure. Of course. So tell me, what is your favorite word? I would tell you hybrid, but then I think lamanese is my favorite word right now. Yes, of course, if you have your own language. Yes, it's a reflection of my crazy little world that is literally a world. It's not a place. I would want to say hybrid because I feel like I'm a combination of so many things, but then I also fit everywhere and I feel like my kids are exactly the same and my husband's exactly the same so my favorite word is lamon and it became lamoncitos with my kids so that's it I've changed my mind (laughs) can you just explain to people what does that mean lamoncitos our friends used to call us lamon which is lama and ramon my husband's name is ramon they made us lamon and then when my kids were born Dalila and Mateo we called them lamoncitos which is a mini Mini lemons in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best word. I love made so up words. So weird. Yeah. What would you say to your younger self if you could go back in time and send yourself a message? I would say, well, to be honest, I'm proud of my younger self because from the circumstances to society to what was expected of me, to what I've become, it's a, you know, it's quite a stretch, but I would say have more fun, relax. My God, I had a few years, I was really uptight. I would say just be more open, more relaxed and not be afraid or fall into any social or any expectation pressure. But to be honest, the traveling I did, the exploration I did, I really followed my heart, but I would do it a bit earlier, I think. What book is either next to your bed or on your desk? There's two books. So I have Rumi next to my bed at all times. Hmm. I have a book called Behave. It's about neuroscience, which I'm trying to get into. It's a bit of a hard read, especially when you don't have so much uh, brain. And every day, actually, I open a page and then read. It's a poetic wisdom for life, for a better life. So it's just stuff you would tell yourself every day. So I, I love that. That sounds wonderful. And as a final question, can I ask you, what brings you happiness? My engine has always been connected to people. But again, 
my happiness right now is really literally seeing how happy my kids are, how healthy. It comes from contentment and, and gratitude. So, and making people happy. So I just, it's a cycle, happiness, breathing happiness. And it's just little things. I've learned to appreciate the smallest things. And I hope I continue to be that person. I hope my kids get to be those people that actually appreciate the smallest things and understand how lucky they are. Thank you so much. That's really wonderful. I appreciate the time that you gave me today. I know that the kids, they've been incredibly well behaved. We have not heard them in the background, by the way. I know, I'm shocked. I was like, I was expecting banging on the door. The hour's over. <laughs> That's so funny. Thank you so much. I will put all of the links in the show notes about the books and the collections and everything we talked about. People can find you on lamahorani.com. Lamahorani.com. Yes, mainly. And in China, we're working on a mini store or mini program, which is totally a new game for me because it's incredible how different e-commerce is in China than the world. Mm. Wow, that sounds very exciting. I can't wait to see what that's going to be like. Me too. Well, thank you so much for everything. I hope to be speaking to you very, very soon. Thank you again. Thank you. I loved our conversation. Thank you. Thank you again to Lama for being my guest on the show today. You can find her at lamahurani.com. And of course, all of the links are included in the show notes. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time. Our theme music is by Connor Heffernan, artwork by Brian Ponto. Special thanks to Pete and Joel for editing and sound. You can soon find all of my episodes and more about my projects at anvimulatalo.com. Sign up to receive updates on all the fun things I am doing. The site will be live very soon. If you can, I'd love it if you would rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps other people find it and I appreciate it very much. Until next time, be well, be safe. Remember the hand washing, the mask, social distancing, all that good stuff.